Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. We're talking about two movies today, both opening this week. Bombshell, about the Roger Ailes Fox News scandal. And the new Safdie Brothers film, starring Adam Sandler, Uncut Gems. Welcome to Film Club. There's a lot of schadenfreude to be had in the <laughs> fall of Ailes in this movie, but that being said, it's actually a very complex story, particularly when you talk about the women at its center. You talk about Megyn Kelly, who one month before she entered into this righteous feminist rivalry with Donald Trump was calling consent laws, reducing the rights of men on mm -hmm. Fox News. And she has a long history of race baiting with this film only superficially engages with. And Gretchen Carlson also, who is the other protagonist of the movie, real life protagonist anyway, there is a third as we'll get to in a minute. But these women were very much loyal soldiers in the Fox News army. They were very complicit and actively participated in building the culture that led to Donald Trump. And the movie really depicts them very one-dimensionally as uh, victims turned whistleblowers. And I really found it disappointing the way that the film just completely fails to engage with any of this complexity. I do agree. I mean, I, I actually think it's pretty cowardly yeah. um, the way that the film handles uh, these these real life figures. I think that it stems from a fear that if uh, we somehow present them as people who were complicit in the message of Fox News, mm -hmm. that somehow might risk us not having sympathy for them a, it, as victims of sexual harassment. That it translates into not believing women, essentially. Right. right. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel as as though the brand of feminism being sold in this movie is really simplistic and not the way most women see things. It kind of smacks of that. There's an infamous tweet, which is, hire more women prison guards. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of that tweet and that we are supposed to unequivocally support all women, regardless of what basically what kind of other bullshit they pull, <laughs> to yeah. put it very like crudely and bluntly. It's just not the way that I and I think most people understand feminism now, and in that way it appears a bit retrograde. I'm not saying that their experiences with sexual harassment weren't real. They definitely were, and it's definitely not good, and no one deserves to be treated that way, but it is a little bit rich the way that they suddenly cared about consent and bodily autonomy when it happened to them. And I think a more complicated film, a, a more interesting one, would, would ask us to grapple with both uh, the tragedy of mm -hmm. what happened, happened to people within that toxic environment and their complicity in, in contributing to a culture of victim blaming, mm -hmm. a, a culture of misogyny daily on their television Daily. shows. Uh, because the show really soft pedals a lot of that. Um, it absolutely I mean, we, does. In, in the case of Megyn Kelly, played by Charlize Theron, mm -hmm. qu quite remarkably. In the case of her, we get we get one little snippet of her talking about, there was a controversy about her saying that there's no way Santa could yeah. be black. She said Santa is white, right. is Santa what is she white. said. So that is the only thing we get with it's her. It's a bit of a joke or a gag in the movie, I felt like. It's sort yeah. of like, isn't it ridiculous that these people are getting so worked up over this little thing that yeah. I found the whole thing a little bit disingenuous, and I'll just say it outright, if a woman had written or directed this movie, I think it would have turned out better because it would have been more able to grapple with nuance and perhaps not be so cowardly, as you put it. In my review of it on the site, I compared it to an Adam McKay movie, mm -hmm. which I think is, it's very much in that kind of style where it takes recent history and turns it into sort of a, what did someone say about Vice that I thought was so funny? 
that it was like a, a Vox, Vox explainer <laughs> of a feature <laughs> Yeah, there's film. an infotainment quality uh -huh. about it. I mean, the movie opens essentially with Megyn Kelly walking around mm -hmm. and giving us a tour of Fox News. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking. The movie, I would say, pulls back a little bit from that at a certain point. Mm -hmm. it, it sort of introduces it as though we're going to be watching one of these McKay-style infotainment comedies about the world of politics and, and recent American scandal, but the movie then sort of seems to realize in real time that this is, this is an issue that, that this is a serious it can't issue. be that glib about. Yeah. Jay Roach directed the film. He has a has a background in comedy. He made the first Austin Powers film. He also directed Meet the Parents mm -hmm. as well. He did sort of do a, a pivot a few years ago to dramatizations of recent political history. He, yeah. he made Recount and Game Change for HBO. Yeah. And I think in a lot of respects, this plays uh, not so different than those, just right. with, a, with a more high profile cast. Yeah, and well, speaking of the high profile cast, you know, some of the com comedic elements of Bombshell did work for me. Mm. There are some very, there are some very funny cameos of mm -hmm. uh, political figures. I know there was one that you were really fond of. Yeah, Richard Kind plays uh, Giuliani, and the minute he shows up, that's very, that's very funny. But I mean, there's it an SNL funny. quality to that too. Yeah, for where sure. Where you're seeing these semi-famous actors showing up, uh, sort of doing these outrageous impersonations of people. Yeah. It makes it a little harder to take the film seriously. Absolutely. It's almost unfortunate the way that Charlize Theron gives such a seamless performance as Megyn Kelly. She talks like her, walks like her, she mm -hmm. gets the voice down, the, the weird little head tilts. It's a very technically impressive performance, which again, maybe we could compare it to Vice because Christian Bale mm -hmm. is Dick Cheney, you know? Sure. And she gives a very good performance and was nominated for a Golden Globe for it. And you know what? I'll give her that. You, yeah. you fully buy her as Megyn Kelly in the movie. You barely recognize her. But the movie doesn't give her very many complicated notes to play. Certainly you doesn't. Know? Certainly it, doesn't. It wants to see her solely as a, a crusading victim. Absolutely. Instead of engaging with her history at the network. Gretchen Carlson is even worse. She's played by yeah. Nicole Kidman in the film, and I think that performance is hampered even more by a refusal to get into her legacy as a personality at right. Fox. There's a scene that really pissed me off. It was the moment when I realized I was really disliking this film. There's a scene where she's in the grocery store, and this woman comes up to her and says, you know, essentially says something to the effect of... She's very rude to Gretchen Carlson. <laughs> right. She says you're like, you're ruining America, basically. Mm -hmm. But the movie has given us very little context exactly. to understand why a, a normal person might think that about Gretchen Carlson, because the only news reports we see Carlson doing in the film are ones that paint her in a pretty sympathetic light. They're uh, ones that paint mm -hmm. her almost in a progressive light. Right, yeah, one of them that I remember is her uh, not wearing makeup on air. Yeah. You know, and that also really struck me that there is nothing about Carlson that gives her even the complexity that Kelly has with that sort of superficial reference to the Santa is white thing. There's right. none of that. And I also hated that scene yeah. that you were talking about. Yeah. I watched it and I said, Oh, okay, we're invoking civility. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I mean, on that note, you know, because they do flatten out the real life characters so much, I found that the toughest emotional scenes in the film were all given to Margot Robbie, who sure. plays an invented character, sure. kind of naive evangelical Christian who gets a job at Fox and really is exposed to a lot of really disgusting behavior on Ailes' part. And he's played by John Lithgow in the film, by the way. And that also kind of struck a sour note with me, honestly, mm. because what words have we used? Glib, cowardly, superficial. With all those words, to have a scene in the middle of the film, which 
made me feel nauseous watching it, and so I suppose it is effective. But a scene watching Roger Ailes force this invented character to keep lifting up her skirt until, you know, she's exposed fully in front of him, I kind of thought, how dare you? A little bit? Mm, like, yeah. how dare you expose us to this honestly kind of traumatic moment and then go back to not engaging with the complexity of the truth? Yeah. It bothered me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think ultimately a better version of this film would mm -hmm. be one that asks us to confront who these people were mm -hmm. and what role they played in a larger culture of misogyny and a larger culture of, of harassment and that really understood their role in the Fox machine and, and tried to convey that because as is, it feels, to me, it feels like the movie wants uh, empowerment points and it, and it wants to present the, these people as empowering without getting into who they really were. Yeah, I 100% agree, and for that reason, I really couldn't, I really can't, I'm having a hard trouble conceiving who this film is for, except for white, middle-class, suburban women who briefly considered voting for Hillary, but in the end voted for Trump. That's the only real audience I can think of for this film. I feel like at this point, the question of whether or not Adam Sandler can act is sort of settled. Mm -hmm. We all have seen him act pretty well in films. Yes, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Adam Sandler's dramatic turns. Always excited. He's to see very one. good. He's very good when he shows up. Yep. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's. I think he's definitely an actor who delineates between these are the projects where I give a shit and these are my paid vacations. You know. He has literally <laughs> called them paid vacations. Yeah. You're not being unfair to him when you say <laughs> I, I that. Kind of admire the honesty a little bit. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> insulting sure. to us, but I do. I do sort of admire. The honesty. But I think what's interesting about Sandler's career as a dramatic actor is that it's not like he's ever really cast against type. How do you mean? So what I mean is that usually when Sandler is in something uh, good, when he's playing a character in Punch Drunk Love, when he's in Judd Apatow's Funny People, in the, the Noah Baumbach film, The Meyerowitz Stories. Yes, he was great in that. Yeah, he's very good in all those films. Yeah. But the thing is that he's not playing characters who couldn't be in an Adam Sandler mm, movie, in, like, a, in a Happy Madison production. Like twitchy, sweaty man-children? Uh, yeah, temper problems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Occasional, occasional emotional outbursts, sometimes stunted. True. You know, they always feel like characters who could, who could could headline a Happy Madison production. It's just that the movie around them is good. <laughs> um, Perhaps, I mean, maybe phrase it a different way. More thought is put into the movie yeah, around him. Right. And Sandler is giving Madison us production. notes that he wouldn't necessarily give in Big Daddy or something. You right. know? He, he's going a little deeper into these characters, but the characters as they stand, I think, could be Adam Sandler characters in an Adam Sandler comedy. I mean, Uncut Gems, the movie we're talking about today, in its opening scene, he holds up a golden diamond necklace of a Furby, <laughs> right. which could be a joke in a Happy Madison production, right? It could right? be, it could be. Yeah. And I think that his character's energy is not unlike something he might bring to a comedy. He's playing a Howard, he's a jeweler in New York, and kind of a wheeler and dealer. Yeah, a lot of money seems to be going in and out of his uh, office every day. Yeah. Where... yeah, he's got this little store um, that he runs, and uh, it's sort of his home base for various schemes and operations that are going on throughout the city. Uh, as the film opens, he's made this big score. He's got his hands on this African opal, basically, yeah. that he thinks could be worth a million dollars. And that proves the catalyst for the plot, which basically is about, he, he sort of ropes in Kevin Garnett, uh, the professional basketball player, into his schemes. And the film becomes about this, uh, sort of this network of wheeling and dealing that he's running sort of around his store and around that opal. And, the yeah. few, and a few days of him sort of running around trying to keep all the balls in the air. Yeah, and you know, beyond his personal life, you do get the impression that Howard is a bit of a fly-by-night kind of guy. Yeah. Like there's a supporting character, Lakeith Stanley, 
Canfield, he kind of is the fixer who brings all these different mm -hmm. sort of like sports and entertainment guys into the store and gets a cut of yeah. whatever they buy. It's very fly-by-night operation. But his big problem in this movie is his gambling <laughs> problem. Yeah, that... I mean, this is definitely a portrait of somebody who has an addiction to, yes. to gambling, although mm -hmm. I would say it's in a, in, a, in a much larger sense, it's a portrait of somebody who has an addiction to, to chaos. Yes, yes, 100%. All throughout the movie, the thing I was really struck by is that the whole time Howard's just like, why are you making my life difficult? Just everyone is making things difficult for him all the time. But he is the one who made it difficult in the first place with these short-sighted, impulsive decisions that yes. he makes constantly. And he <laughs> must like on some level being at the center of all this chaos because he just keeps perpetuating it yeah. over and over again. If he had just stopped at some point during this movie and I don't know, taken a nap, gone to the, the sauna for an afternoon or something. Things would have sorted themselves out, but he keeps escalating and escalating and escalating. The movie like takes him to the edge of self-awareness mm -hmm. and then pulls him back from it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? It's definitely a movie about somebody who, uh, who has created so many problems in his life that he's almost being forced into a reckoning. Yep. Will he change his ways or not is, the, is sort of the, the question of the film. I found this movie enormously stressful. Yes, it definitely, like <laughs> they, the Safdies always, their stuff's always very, kinetic and breakneck, like yeah, good, yeah, good yeah. time, their last film, which mm -hmm. I also liked a lot, is another movie where you're just running, running, running the whole yeah. time. But this one has a uniquely stressful, I don't know if they're just amping up their filmmaking technique. I mean, the movie is sh often shot in really tight close-up. Mm -hmm. We're following Howard around behind his back, just sort of uh, the camera trailing around him. Yeah. The performances, I think a lot of them are pitched to this level of constant antagonism, you know? Mm -hmm. Everybody's always yelling. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Music is is blaring and overpowering uh, yes. at times. You I was know? gonna say the sound of the film is very stressful. Yeah, you know, between the 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 yelling and the music and the, like you were saying, the camera constantly moving. Yeah, if you, <laughs> I I won't say that it's not an enjoyable watch. No, I, I think it's enjoyed watching it. and funny. Yeah, even though it's so, but it's so stressful. It's like a panic attack, you know? Yeah. I mean, they should hand out Xanax with this movie, you <laughs> know, really honestly. Should. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm impressed by the degree to which the Safties sustain that for two and a half hours. It's Yes, because yeah. and it doesn't feel that long. Right. It doesn't feel like a slog, even though, yes, it just keeps coming and coming and coming and yeah. coming and coming, yeah. Totally. So you, as you mentioned, this is their follow-up to Good Time. Mm -hmm. uh, Josh and Benny Safdie, they've been making movies in New York their whole career, mm -hmm. they started out making like micro-budget films. Tiny. You know. They have one um, that we were actually discussing before we started taping. It's called Daddy Long Legs. Mm -hmm. It's on Criterion Channel if you have that, if you want to check out their earlier work. And uh, all their films are set in New York, essentially. Mm -hmm. They just have been kind of increasing in budget, but I'm impressed to the degree to which, uh, well, this, the scale of their movies has increased and the level of the talent they work with has increased. It hasn't, it hasn't. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, like you said, there's still a lot of close-ups in this film, a lot of containers spaces there aren't a ton of like huge crowd scenes or anything mm -hmm. like that you know it's still a very focused story yeah but the, the budget guy. of these films has increased a lot sure and they're working with I mean in this film they're working with Eric Bogosian is in it uh, as, you, as you mentioned Lakeith Stanfield mm -hmm. they're working with bigger actors than they worked earlier in their career fair but as sort of as the budgets and and the production of their films has has gotten larger, they've they've sort of preserved uh, this sort of grubby, gritty New York spirit of their work. Yeah, you know, they're, you, they're still they're still like fragrantly independent filmmakers. Yeah, like uh, I would call them. I mean, they're almost 
it's such, I hear the term dirtbag cinema applied to the Safties a lot, and I would agree with that, but there's almost something grindhouse-y about how grimy it is. Mm -hmm. What I think watching their films is that it's sort of a, uh, a New York that we don't always see in movies anymore. Yes. The, this film is set in 2012. It yes. ends up uh, sort of revolving around <laughs> the very real NBA finals. It's uh, a very funny stuff. The yeah. period stuff. I really like uh, the way they did the period. You know, normally you have a news background, a news cast on in the background or something like that, and that's how you set the year. But they do it with some really funny little details that are mm -hmm. worked into the plot, like the weekend playing himself <laughs> as a small part in this movie, which yeah. is, you know, very of that particular moment. But though the film is set in 2012, it feels like we're looking at it at, at the the sort of pre-Giuliani cleanup New York. Totally. You know, of, yeah. of like the 1970s. Yeah. And I feel like their work has sort of remained in that 70s, 80s version of New York. They found a way to find that in a contemporary New York. Yeah, I totally agree. And as as such, I think in terms of an immersive movie-going experience, it's one of the top films of the year. I would definitely agree, too, and I would say it's also a pretty terrific showcase for Sandler. All right, folks, well, that's all we've got for you this week. If you want to hear more of our thoughts on Bombshell and Uncut Gems, please check out the reviews on avclub.com. And also, while you're at it, please be sure to review, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we will be back next week with two huge films in different ways. We've got The Rise of Skywalker and Little Women, a blockbuster for the Greta Gerwig fans out there. <laughs> And also, we're going to have a special bonus to end out the year. I will not tell you what it is, but digital fur technology is involved. <laughs> Until then, this is Film Club. Thanks for listening. Bye.